You are listening to the Canadian Bar Association National Magazine. Hi, I'm your host, Steve Fagee, and the Editor-in-Chief of CBA National Magazine. Welcome to After the Pandemic, where we discuss emerging issues in law in a world transformed. Today on the podcast, we're discussing pay equity and women's career advancement in law. Now, it's been said more than a few times over the last year, and we're recording this on March 26, 2021, that the economic downturn brought on by COVID-19 is very different from the previous recessions we've experienced in that it has had a disproportionate impact on women. Generally, they've assumed a greater or heavier burden on the childcare front, have suffered greater losses of income and job losses. And while women in the legal industry may have fared comparatively well to other industries, it's important to recall that prior to COVID-19, women were already underrepresented in leadership positions in the business and legal world. 27 years after the CBA's Touchstones report, the 1993 document that examined discrimination against women in law, the issue of diversity and inclusion remains real. Not that there hasn't been some progress, but it's been slow. And there's reason to worry during this pandemic that women may not be able to reclaim their gains. And can we hope to reset the discussion around workplace equity and do better than we did before? To help us better understand all of these issues, we've invited Carly Romano, the ED of Pro Bono Law in Saskatchewan, and Catherine Iwasiak, a lawyer at Fulton in Vancouver. Both are members of the CBA's National Women Lawyers Forum. Thank you for being with me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Let's get started. Uh, First of all, tell us a little bit about the virtual roundtable on pay equity in the legal profession that uh, that the WLF is organizing. Carly, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. We have a uh, webinar and a small group focus group session after that planned for April 21st. Um, We're very excited for the webinar to be moderated by Robin Doolittle of the Globe and Mail, who just recently published really interesting work on pay equity uh, called the Power Gap Series. So the webinar is open to all CBA members and will feature a panel of experts from Canada, the U.S. and the U.K., And the webinar is part of our national uh, research initiative of the Women Lawyers Forum. And uh, we are hoping to gather data about Canadian lawyers' experiences, perceptions, and potential solutions to the uh, gender wage gap in legal workplaces. So the point of it is to, one, educate our members about um, the pay equity power gap or gender situation in the law and in Canada, and then also to uh, gather feedback um, to provide some guidance to the Women Lawyers Forum on how to advocate and um, deal with this issue going forward. But And so as I understand correctly, this so this is not just about collecting data on uh, the wage gap itself. There, there's more that feeds into this. Is that right? Yeah, I guess um, the Women Lawyers Forum has actively been dealing with the issue of uh, gender wage gap for a couple of years now. We are looking specifically for um, experiences from Canadian lawyers from a breadth of um, places, whether it's practice area, gender, uh, year of call, uh, geographical location. We're also looking, though, for solutions and ways to move forward um, from barriers that you know, women and um, women of color are BIPOC populations experience in, in dealing with some of these pay equity issues. Uh, Catherine, 
uh, let me ask you a question. You know, we, we've talked a lot about, and I mentioned this in the intro, that uh, women have been among the hardest hit by the recession uh, caused by the pandemic. And, you know, it's even been dubbed the she-session to sort of set, a, set it apart from previous recessions. What have you observed in your entourage and, you know, in the legal industry in particular? Have, uh, how have you seen things play out? Yeah, um, and I think it's, as you probably know, the previous financial recession is actually called a he session. Um, that was because the first industry that was the hardest hit was the manufacturing and goods sector, which is, employs a lot of men. This recession is different and COVID is different um, because it's affected businesses and areas of work where people tend to gather, which is um, apparently where a lot of women still work and are predominantly employed, um, teaching, food service industry, childcare. And so the, I, I saw a stat, I, I don't know how accurate it is, but reported that early on in the pandemic, so uh, 62% of the people who lost their jobs were women. Um, so I think if anything, it's really shown that there is still a divide, quite a stark divide in the kind of work that men and women do. Um, within the legal industry context, I, I have observed it, um, particularly through the lens of childcare. Um, I mean, through in BC, certainly, and I think throughout Canada, there was a, definitely a period of time where children weren't in school and women, you know, to this day are still often the primary caregiver of children. So we're having to take time out in order to look after the children. And if you've got a, a, a parental unit where one person earns less, then that tends to be the woman and one person's income has to take a hit, it will probably be the person who is making less. So that, that, that is where I've noticed it the most, I would say. You know, it's interesting because I was talking with uh, Patricia Gamliel uh, on the French version of this uh, of this podcast, and she was mentioning one of the things that I thought was interesting that we were talking about. You know, the, the childcare burden. She was saying, you know, one of the things that does have to change is that um, fathers can take par- parental leave, but workplaces in the legal industry have to come to terms with that. Any thoughts on that, Carly? By any chance? I, I think it definitely is a concept that needs to be accepted. And I think it it is more so. Uh, I think we're seeing it a lot more often than you might have traditionally seen that option, uh, especially with younger fathers. Um, mm-hmm. But you're right. It's not as common. Um, it's not as commonplace. I think there's been some federal government policies that have come into place to incentivize um, um, you know, parental leave uh, for fathers. But it isn't, it isn't as common a, as as I think it was, is required um, in order to have some equity in the child rearing and for women to not have to necessarily take as much of a hit in taking time off of work. Why is it so difficult for men or women or non-binary people to take parental leave in the practice of law? I think a lot of law is being in the action and being present. A lot of law and you know, being quote unquote good at law is about your personal connections and your networks. Building a good book of business means that you're there and that you're um, creating personal relationships with clients and with um, people within your firm in order to get good work, to keep busy, to keep there for files. So um, any type of leave can be really hard for lawyers in that they're not physically at the office, they're not top of mind um, to get file referrals, you know, they're not the networking events to meet new clients and uh, to build on relationships. Man, woman, non-binary, an individual being present is really important in the traditional sense of the law right now, how the practice of law is being practiced right now. Uh, Catherine, I'm wondering, uh, you know, from your point of view, um, and I realize you're in the fairly early stages of your career, but, 
you know, has the pandemic uh, and in your experience as, as a lawyer working, uh, working in private practice, has the pandemic in any way, do you think, changed the conversation about, about looking at opportunities for women to advance in the legal profession? Um, I think there's two sides to that. I think in some ways it's a lot of, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of firms were just focused on surviving. Um, so that kind of pushed, could have had the effect of pushing the discussion to the side while firms are trying to survive it. And particularly lawyers, I, I know a lot of, uh, quite a few lawyers who did lose their jobs during the beginning of the pandemic, um, and many of them have now got them back. But you're not going to have a discussion about pay equity with your employer when you're just worried about keeping your job. But on the other side, um, I do think it's particularly with the childcare, as we've said before, it has brought to the front of everybody's mind more that these inequalities do exist. Um, and it, it's not just in the legal industry, but everywhere. There's been a lot of discussion about pay equity. And I think that talking about it in the wider spread community is one of the most important ways that move the conversation forward and move towards more pay equity between genders. Uh, Carly, how does the legal industry compare to the business world on this issue? I think it's fairly similar. Um, you know, through Robin Doolittle's work through the Power Gap series, she makes comparisons between universities, municipalities, uh, provincial governments and public corporations, um, and then does some a couple articles specifically on the legal field. And I and I think the trends are similar. You know, I think that there's lots of issues with uh, not enough women being in positions of power. Um, a lot of women not again not being paid equitably uh, compared to their male counterparts. I think again in the business world and private sector, I still think that conversations around pay and compensation are taboo, can be secretive, hard to get access to, and so I think there's very similar trends within the practice of law. Same thing with um, diversity issues as well. You know, generally speaking, white uh, individuals rise further than BIPOC individuals. So I, I think the practice of law is very similar to business and private sector in, in dealing and trying to tackle some of these barriers for uh, individuals to be uh, treated equitably. So why, why do you think it's so difficult in the business world to uh, get good information on pay? from people. Why are, why are people in the upper echelons of law and business and all that, why are they, why are they so secretive about compensation? Um, I think there's a wider societal attitude towards discussing money that is, especially in our Western society, it's seen as rude. And I think that kind of infiltrates into businesses and law firms. I, I don't think it's that people who are making these compensation decisions necessarily sit around and say, I'm not going to tell anybody because it directly benefits me and I can make more money if I pay other people less. I mean, maybe they do, but I, I don't know that that's necessarily what happens. But there's no drive to change something that benefits you, whether you're aware of it or not. So, so I think it's, you know, and then there are some other like more uh, legitimate concerns as well. There might be concerns about privacy. So, um, staff personally may not want other people to know their salary. There may be concerns that it you know, might cause issues within the workplace if some people know that other people make more money than them. Maybe there's a fear that some people will be paid more than they should be paid. Um, and there may be you know, uh, com competition issues between businesses and firms may not want other firms to know their compensation strategies and how they compensate people. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of 
very um, complicated problems that surround that. Um, it, it's difficult to make people aware that, you know, the transparency is kind of a really important step in moving towards pay equity. Carly, any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I would echo Catherine's comments and, and add that pay decisions can be really complex. Um, and I don't think it all comes down to one decision, you know, a, a, a necessarily appointed decision to say, you know, we're not going to pay this person as much because of X, Y, or Z, right? I, I think a lot of these decisions come into, you know, why does that person have so many billable hours? Why does that person um, get good files? Um, and so they get good work and so they, you know, can perform on um, on certain issues. I think there's a long road to get to that um, filled with many decisions that um, a lot of our times our unconscious bias can leak into. And so the reason at the end of the day, when you're going in to get your um, you know, pay increase or your review for the end of the year, it's not that one decision that's made. I think there's several decisions that are made throughout the year um, that lead to that person getting that amount of hours or getting that type of work or getting that type of file or working with that type of partner or client. And so it's complex. And so I, I think, and it's understandable that some firms or organizations might see it as unfair to see just gender imposed on compensation. Um, and therefore it looks unequal when there's a lot of decisions coming into that. You know, we'd also recognize that gender is not binary. And so even from that lens, it's not even an accurate description. So it's complex. However, I'm not, you know, I think we also would promote transparency in order for um, everyone to be understanding where their compensation is coming from and to understand those unconscious biases, which might be leading to some inequity. So, I mean, with, with the emergence of some of these movements that we've seen accelerate over the last year to, uh, you know, uh, and I'm, re- I'm referring to, you know, everything from non-binary people asserting their uh, rights and desires, and as well as, uh, you know, uh, BIPOC uh, groups also wanting to assert their views in, in this changing environment. How does that play into women wanting to reinitiate this discussion around pay equity and equal advancement of opportunity? Does it complicate and muddy the waters or is it adding allies to your, to your efforts? Yeah, I think it's it's just an inherently very complicated <laughs> discussion. Um, but I, I think you can't have equality that doesn't include everybody, right? Like the without a consideration of intersection intersectionality um, within the pay equity discussion is incredibly important. Um, this, but it, you know, we're we're looking at it through. We recognize that the lens currently of men and women is is a limited lens. Um, but hoping also that we might be able to get some data um, that touches on more of those intersectional issues as well. Our government's currently, oh, sorry, were you going to add something to that? Yeah, I was just going to say that, you know, it's, I think it also reflects on how far we are behind in Canada, that we don't even have a rudimentary understanding about pay equity. And I guess I'm speaking towards the legal system or the legal mm-hmm. profession right now between even, you know, the binary men and women. Um, so adding these other layers um, does complicate things and for the better. Um, but we don't even have a baseline right now, which I think reflects poorly on the legal profession. And, and it's what something that the Women Lawyers Forum is is advocating for, for information um, to be able to improve this for everybody. 
Well, it's a good point. Uh, you know, our, our governments here in Canada, uh, at the provincial level, at the federal level, have enacted various labor and human rights laws uh, to address gender-based wage discrimination. So, you know, and, and some of these laws have been around for quite some time. So why is it that they haven't had their desired effect? Where, where have we dropped the ball? I think it's really difficult to, well, if there's no transparency, how do you know you're getting paid less, first of all? And secondly, the laws maybe don't, as we just discussed, the issue is very complex. I, I'm not sure that the laws, you know, accurately capture the complexity of the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to say conclusively that somebody is being paid less because of their gender. There's there's so many factors that go into these pay compensation discussions and decisions. So it's hard to pinpoint that it's because of your gender. It's it's a whole host of things, right? It's it. it you know, it's gender-based things that in, inform those decisions, perhaps. It's, for example, um, a woman is paid less because she, say, a firm's compensation structure is based on billable hours. And a woman is paid less um, because she's spent more hours in a mentorship role instead. That's not a reason because she's a woman, but it, it is related to these gender roles that we have in society for these roles that women typically fill that historically women have been expected to perform, expected to be, to perform for free. So it's, it's a whole host of inherent, like people might not be even be aware that they're paying people less because of these gender based things. Another thing that's kind of interesting, I find, though, too, is that, you know, we're, we're talking about transparency. And, you know, I mean, we've, we've seen this in law where you have, you know, so these like lockstep systems of, you know, increases in salary depending on year of call and all that. And, and uh, you know, I, I, we see this a lot in the U.S., but I think in Canada we see it, too, where, you know, firms like to award bonuses uh, instead of salary raises. I guess it gives them a little bit of flexibility in case things turn sour. A little later down the road, uh, a little a little later down the road, but but uh, does it also per- not perpetuate a practice of lack of transparency? I think there's a lot of issues around bonuses, and again, as stated previously, that a lot of unconscious bias goes into that bonus structure. Again, I think a lot of times it's not transparent to the associate as to what is even included in that, and then from there, how how the firm then makes those decisions about what kind of bonuses are being dealt out. Again, in Robin Doolittle's Power Gap series, she, she ana- analyzes bonus structures in a certain larger firm. And again, whether or not the firm was aware of this or not, um, when making these decisions, that majority of the bonuses went to men, fewer women got bonuses and fewer uh, and women got fewer amounts of bonuses than men. Again, I don't think that is a malicious decision that is being made by the compensation committee at the at the firm. However, again, being trying to be objective um, and and reviewing these standards or reviewing the processes in order to to one give out bonuses and how much, uh, I think a lot of unconscious um, bias comes into that, slips into those decisions. Um, and again, I don't think it boils down to one decision. I think it leads. There's lots of tiny decisions that are made throughout the year to come to that conclusion of why that individual should not be given a bonus or how much the bonus is. Um, so I think it's a process of, of being open about it and firms or committees to be uh, objectionable about what they are trying to do here and what their goals are and how they're reaching those goals. I, I don't think this is you know a blame situation. I think this is an opportunity for learning and for growing and um, I think all firms want their workplaces to be safe and equitable environments for everybody. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's a fair point that you know the employers or the law firms or even in the business world, I think you know they want you know they, they probably feel a certain amount of pressure to get this right as well, and they probably want to foster you know healthy healthy work environments too because that would be to their benefit. Like, what what is the hardest part about sort of collecting all these unconscious biases and trying to map out a future where there's a more equitable distribution of pay and opportunity in law firms and in you know and for that matter in the in the corporate world like this seems like a pretty intractable problem so i'm just trying to see like what what for you perhaps Catherine, is is the most uh the most difficult challenge in that i think it's the fact that there are unconscious biases it's it's people as we've seen with the in the wake of you know the black lives matter protests in the summer you hold on to these ideas that you don't even really know you have. And it's a lot of personal work and dissection and kind of realizing that you hold, everybody has prejudices, right? So it's about recognizing what prejudices you hold and kind of coming to terms with that moving forward and figuring out ways to do that. So I, I think awareness, as Carly said, not not blaming people because I, I don't think it's a blame game. I don't, I don't think there's a lot of maliciousness that goes into it. I, I think a lot of it is that people just aren't aware that they're doing it and that they hold these internal opinions or biases towards people of certain genders and color. It's, yeah, it goes all over the map with that. So Carly, the, 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 the question is like from the, from the vantage point of the, um, you know, those who determine pay and those who determine opportunity for people, what's, what's the answer there? It's, you know, how do they check those unconscious biases? Is it just taking a more active approach to looking into these issues? I think it can start from square one and even in their hiring processes um, or even as, you know, minuscule or detailed as, you know, the forms that they use. Lots of times our forms talk about gendered positions or gendered roles or gender presumptions. So language that we use, you know, what are our policies speaking about? And so, a lot of this is like digging up the root causes, right? So going into hiring, you know, how are we doing our hiring practices? Do we have some sort of diversity goals? What are our forms look like? What do our policies look like? What are our, what is the language that we use? And then monitoring things, you know, from the hiring process. So again, lots of most firms use a lockstep where, you know, it, it looks equitable in that you know, associates are being paid the same level, despite whatever, you know, uh, up to, to a certain point. But also that needs to be reviewed as, as gender, as uh, Catherine was talking about some of the gendered roles. Are there more women on the social committee? Are there more women on the mentorship committee? You know, who's doing what for extracurricular non-billable hours for the firm? So there's a, a lot of um, ways that a lens or a gendered lens or a diversity lens needs to be put on a lot of the practices that again, seem you know, harmless when looking at it. Well, Jane wanted to volunteer. Jane likes the social committee. And so Jane wanted to volunteer. And so why can't Jane participate in the social committee? But looking mm-hmm. at it then at the, again, at the end of the year on the review, well, Jane had a lot more non-billable hours for the social committee or for, you know, mentorship or for, um, you know, recruitment or whatever the case may be. So I, I think it starts at square one. I think there's got to be kind of a step back to look at, you know, and again, not blame, but to be objectionable in your practices and your policies and to be putting a diversity and a gendered lens on that to ensure that 
despite the fact that it's harmless or not set out to be malicious anyway, but can have these implications, which later down the line are inequitable. Catherine, you know, we've, uh, you know, Carly was mentioning earlier that, um, you know, Canada was a little bit behind on this, on this front. And, uh, you know, in terms of our legislation and from, you know, from legal point of view, I know that in the UK, companies of a certain size have to publish data about wage gaps. My understanding is that that applies to law firms as well. Uh, I'm just wondering if businesses or law firms here in Canada should be required to do the same in your view. Is that something that we need to be considering? I also think, uh, you know, uh, my understanding is also that in the EU, many of those countries are looking at similar types of legislation. Um, Yeah, I mean, personally, I do think that. I think it's a really important step towards transparency in it. But I I also would say it doesn't solve the problems. It hasn't solved the problem of pay equity in the UK. It's important to remember, too, that different law firms are different. So I I imagine that's why the UK law is the way that it is, is that it only applies to really large companies, um, as it's harder for smaller companies to be able to do that. There's, I think there's a host of issues that come along with enacting laws that require people to do things. Such as? Um, I think it might engender, I, I don't know, bad feelings in the firms towards law societies. You know, people find loopholes. It, it's, there's enforcement of it, like who's going to enforce it. Um, and then, you know, there's, if nobody enforces it, it kind of just becomes a rubber stamp um, or something that people don't follow. And kind right, of, it, looks, it looks fine on paper, but, but yeah, it doesn't really get, it, it, then it doesn't get enacted. Yeah, exactly. Or, or it, you know, it just looks like a flimsy law that, you know, put, makes it seem like the issue isn't important. Um, so I think there's, I don't think it's not the right way to go, but there are a lot of considerations that should go along with it. Carly, any, any views on that? Or and like who should, you know, who, like if, if so, who would be responsible for uh, regulating that type of thing? Should it just be government? Yeah, like I think UK is a really interesting example of that. There's going to be a speaker from the UK at our webinar on April 21st um, that all CBA members are welcome to join and um, listen in on. Um, and you know, from the UK experience, there's been some there's been some examples of sharing more after the legislation was enacted. And so I think that's an encouraging example of how legislation can move firms' attitudes to increase transparency, you know, whether that's going to be the federal government, provincial government, or the law society, you know, I I think it's, it can be contentious matters. Um, I think law societies and acting firms to act in a certain way can are contentious matters as we've seen with other issues. So I, I guess, you know, my, my thoughts on this is whoever is able to be as neutral as possible while still you know, hitting the goal of transparency and of getting data. I don't think anything is going to change if we don't have the data. Um, And so that is, you know, that's a goal of the WLF. You know, we've been working at this for a couple of years now. And so if there is no data, I don't think we're going to pinpoint an issue. And then I don't think we'll be able to tackle it. So um, data is very important. Yeah. And I think it, it does something from top down probably does need to happen um, because otherwise without large, wider societal change, which is hard to enact, where does the motivation come from to disclose that data? Catherine, what, uh, you know, in terms of, in terms of data, you know, uh, Carly was talking about, you know, the importance of the WLF roundtable 
gathering data, but you know, what would what would be a success for you, um, and what are you hoping uh, that the roundtable will achieve? Um, I'm excited to hear people's solutions to the problem. I am. We yeah, it's. I, I think that'll be a very interesting portion of it, and I hope we have. Um, there, there's going to be a report written afterwards mm -hmm. um, that will uh, kind of put together all of our findings, um, and hopefully, and kind of inform our work going forward. Um, so I think there'll be some very interesting things coming out of that. And how about you, Carly? Yeah, I'm looking forward to the RAND table. I'm um, really encouraged with the uh, enthusiasm that we've seen from the people that have been invited to our focus group. Um, the goal is to get perspectives and to reach out to our members and to um, important groups within the legal um, community in, in Canada to be able to get a direction um, and to get some advocacy points for the WLF to move forward on this matter. This is the right time for this, you know, as noted with this, the she session and COVID-19, um, but also, you know, more so with the movements of Me Too, uh, Black Lives Matter. Um, we're in a really good time frame right now for to push this matter through. And I think this is COVID has brought really terrible, tragic things for our economy. But I also think it's given us a window of opportunity. Um, it's been able to, you know, it's an opportunity for us to see how things can be different, um, how we can push these matters through. So we're really excited from the WLF's perspective on this. Uh, we're thankful for our uh, delegate members for participating and giving their time, as well as our uh, webinar hosts and uh, moderators. So uh, I think it's a really good opportunity for us to push the matter forward. Well, uh, Carly and Catherine, I want to thank you both for your perspectives in discussing uh, these important questions. Um, and so uh, thanks, for, thanks for joining us, telling us a little bit about the efforts of WLF and, uh, and about your own experiences and what you've seen in the industry over the, last, over the last little time. So I've been talking with Carly Romano, the ED of Pro Bono Law in Saskatchewan, and Catherine Iwasiak, uh, a lawyer at Fulton in Vancouver. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You can hear this podcast and others on our CBA channel, The Every Lawyer, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes and to hear some French, listen to our Juriste Branché podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And if, if you have any comments, feedbacks, and suggestions, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at CBA NatMag and on Facebook. And check out our coverage of legal affairs at nationalmagazine.ca. A big, big thank you to our podcast editor, Anne-Catherine Desulmets. And thank you all for listening to this month's episode of After the Pandemic. We'll catch you next month.